0: Well, let's look in our Bibles again. Now we're going to look at Luke chapter 23. And I know that I had, uh, I had told Alan that we were just going to read verses 42 and 43, but I want to back up, if I can, to to, uh, to verse 39, if we can do that. If, if we can't do it on the screen, you can at least look at it in your Bible. And uh, But Luke chapter 23, we'll go with verses 39 through 43. It says in here, This is a scene at the cross. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, that is Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, I'm not trying to bash politicians. I'm really not. I'm just going to tell you the facts on this. And I think it's kind of an interesting thing. Woodrow Wilson was running for re-election to the presidency back in 1916. And he had a campaign slogan. And that campaign slogan was this. He kept us out of war." because the American public were concerned that we might get involved in this great war, which we weren't even calling it World War I at the time. It was just a big war, and we didn't want to be involved in it. And that was his campaign promise, and that was his campaign slogan. But in 1917, after he was in office, guess what? He led us into World War I. Now some of you may remember Lyndon Johnson whenever he was a president. Well, he ran for election after completing the uh, unfulfilled term of John Kennedy and and Johnson was com- campaigning against Barry Goldwater, a tough senator out of Arizona. Johnson was campaigning as the peace candidate. Remember, we were already involved with with stuff in Vietnam, and so Johnson was characterizing himself as the peace candidate and barry goldwater as the warmonger matter of fact he had a really ugly tv commercial about barry goldwater and the world being blown up with an atomic bomb basically and johnson won the election but after he got into office we got further entangled into the vietnam war ronald reagan promised in 1980 that he would support a constitutional amendment to allow school prayer and it never got off the ground. It has been estimated that President Obama kept less than half of his promises and just flat broke about 20% of them and remember what Donald Trump said that he was going to do whenever he got to be president he was going to build a wall between Mexico and the U.S. And how many of you believed that he was going to do that and then get Mexico to pay for that wall? I don't think so, Tim. (laughs) But anyway, we can take a closer look at home. And uh, there was one particular uh, individual, East Texas guy. He ran for state representative for his district. And he promised if you elected him, what he was going to do was to get rid of term limits in the state legislature. He got elected, and before he knew it, he forgot all about it and just kept running for reelection. I'm not really bashing the politicians right here. What I'm telling you is this, is no matter how sincere you are, even if you are in politics, no matter how sincere you are, you can make promises, but just because you make promises, it doesn't mean that you're always able to fulfill the promises, you know, and... I guess maybe I'm a little too optimistic or maybe a little too trusting, but I really do think that there's a lot of uh, politicians that when they're running for office, they sincerely believe that they're going to fulfill some of those promises. They really do. They think that they can do it. And then they get to Washington or to Austin, and they find out that it's a different story once you get to the big time. You see, we do the same thing, don't we? We tend to make promises that are sometimes impossible for us to keep. But isn't it good to know today that Jesus never makes a promise that he can't deliver on and that he doesn't deliver on? And that is what this is about. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Let's look at this passage. First of all, we start off with what we would call a confident request right here. Now this is a place where our modern translations and our traditional King James version there's a little bit of difference between the two it's just really slight like in the King James version we see the thief on the cross turning to Jesus and say Lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom the thief's words according to the newer versions and I think that they're really correct on this was not Lord remember me, but it was Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom. The difference is really very slight, but it is meaningful. Here's the thing about it that just should raise your eyebrows a little bit. This is the only record that we have in all the Gospels in which Jesus is addressed by his name only and not his name with a title attached to it. That's something. You know, in the gospel, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. He's called Jesus the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. He's called Jesus Master, Jesus the Son of David. But he's never simply called Jesus the name that Joseph and Mary gave him, the name that he grew up being called whenever he was in Nazareth. There's something important about this. First of all, for the thief on the cross just to call him Jesus, it indicated something about the sincerity of his request. But also, it, it, it also talks about the confidence of his request. You come, you come to someone and you call them by the first name, you're believing that they're going to listen. And, and that's exactly what we see right here. And it's really kind of ironic that the very first person in the New Testament who had the confidence to be so familiar with Jesus is a convicted criminal who is also the last person on earth to speak to Jesus before he dies. What made this dying thief so confident? How is it that he expected Jesus to remember him whenever he came into his kingdom? Well, number one, he must have believed that Jesus was the Messiah. In other words, the one that was anointed to be the king. He might not have understood all that that involved, but he must have believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And the reason was is maybe he heard him teach at some time. It would not be a big surprise at all. Remember, whenever Jesus came to any town or to any village, he was the biggest show in town. People flocked to hear him, not just by the dozens, but even by the thousands. And there were times that after people heard him, they will say, never did a man speak like he did. He was something special, and you could just simply tell it by the way that he preached and taught. Maybe this dying thief was familiar with some of the miracles that he performed. I mean... It was only two miles away and a few days earlier in which Jesus went to Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus had been in the tomb for four literally stinking days. I mean, and that was not the only person that Jesus raised from the dead. It's like one of my friend in the ministry used to say a long time ago, Jesus fouled up every funeral that he ever attended. You know, once he showed up, the funeral was over with, and I guess he went to the Fellowship of Paul and started eating pimento cheese sandwiches. But anyway, <laughs> but maybe he knew about some of these miracles. And even before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was in Jerusalem when he healed a man of blindness and the man had been born blind and it was even conceded when this man was on trial before the religious leaders in which he said it has never before been heard of a man who was born blind receiving his sight again. He said if this man were not of God he couldn't do anything like this. And so maybe this thief on the cross believed that he was the Messiah simply because of the things that he was able to do and maybe he was thinking that some way and somehow Jesus would end up setting up his messianic kingdom at the end of the age when all the dead would be raised and whatever were the expectations of this thief on the cross his words were not the words of someone who was just grasping at straws and hoping against hope that maybe he would be able to Find some kind of hope. But what it was was this. This was the request of a man who held to a certainty that somehow this one who raised the dead and this one who healed the sick would someday sit upon the throne and reign forever. And this thief with hope for nothing else was submitting his application for a job whenever that day should come for Jesus to set up his kingdom and somehow he believed that that application would be accepted. (laughs) Well, that's kind of putting it in today's terms. But can we have that same kind of confidence in Jesus? Hmm? Can we? Well, of course we can. First of all, I mean, we can have confidence based on the miracles that Jesus performed. I mean, really, really? You say, well, you just get that out of the New Testament. The thing is this, is that you would just about have to be blind to the facts of history to deny that Jesus worked miracles. He did. There's no way that we can explain his popularity and his following other than the fact that he did things like nobody else could ever do. He probably was also, we could also have confidence in him simply because of his teachings, I mean, you think about things like the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings and and discourses that he made that we can read about in the Gospels. I mean, no one really has ever spoken like that before. Another reason that we can have confidence in him is what we know about the way that he dealt with people. I mean, Jesus is merciful. Jesus was gracious. Jesus was kind. Look at it this way. Jesus dealt with all kinds of people in society religious stuff shirts and what about oh the town trollop from Sychar in Samaria that Jesus talked to at the well that had more husbands than Zsa Zsa Gabor nearly or what about Mary Magdalene and we read a lot about her but sometimes we forget the one thing about Mary Magdalene is Jesus cast seven demons out of the girl How would you have liked for her to be your next door neighbor? And what about that crooked tax collector, Zacchaeus? If Jesus could relate to those people, and if Jesus would be kind to those people, don't you think that there's hope for you and hope for me? You see, above all those things, though, there's another thing that gives us this, this certainty That Jesus can give us something nobody else can. It's because Jesus, when he was crucified, he was raised from the dead on the third day. He has overcome death in the grave. The promise of Jesus, the promise of eternal life that Jesus made is absolutely unshakable. He's not promising something that two or three years down the line he was saying, whoops, I didn't realize I couldn't do that. No, no, that's not the way Jesus operates. There's another thing that we see in here is that it's a gracious gift. Now, this thief on the cross was no petty shoplifter. I mean, crucifixion was an ugly, nasty, gory, grisly way to die. And it was considered to be so inhumane and barbaric that as I recall... Which is not always safe, but I think my memory serves me right here. If my memory serves me right, it was illegal during the first century to crucify a Roman citizen. Okay? okay. And it was just that bad. There were people that were already beginning to cry out for a complete ban on crucifixion just because it was so mean and ugly. I mean, we see it sometimes in pictures and paintings and stuff like that, and it almost looks glorious. You know, there's Jesus on this cross that's way up there, and he has this white, you know, whatever you call it, around his waist and all of that. And everything looks so nice and holy and wonderful. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. It didn't look like that on the day that Jesus died. You weren't too far off the ground. In other words, you were lifted up just to make sure that your feet didn't touch the ground. You were, you were compl- stripped completely naked. You didn't have a stitch on you so that you would be even more humiliated while you were on the cross. People could walk up close to where you were and say all kinds of bad things about you. If they wanted to, they could spit on you if they wanted to. You know, this was just a nasty, ugly way to die. And so it was reserved for the worst people in society. This thief on the cross was probably nothing more than a larcenous thieving thug and he had nothing to offer which could earn him any special consideration from Jesus Christ. He had nothing to offer and he knew it. He had no time to make up for his crimes or the misdeeds that he had done. Now this other thief on the other side of Jesus seemed to think that he deserved a little favor and a little bit of deliverance. But the, but the thief who ultimately received the promise from Jesus Christ had no bargaining power at all and he knew it. He knew that there was no way that he could promise Jesus that he would make it all up to God and up to society and to the world somehow if Jesus would just do him a favor and let him have a place in the kingdom. And whenever he said that to Jesus, Jesus didn't give him just kind of a vague answer like, oh, I don't know, maybe we'll give you a spot, I don't know, or we'll see about it talk to me here in another five minutes or something instead what jesus did was this he made him a solemn promise and it began this way i tell you the truth truly or as it says in the king james version verily it was a solemn promise because this promise was unbreakable And it was as certain as the sunrise. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. No doubt about it. So what makes that promise certain? It's grace. Pure, simple grace. Because you see, grace is the only way that we can have any confidence of having any future with God. It's just like that thief on the cross. We could have a... lifetimes to make up for our sins and still know that we have not done enough to hear Jesus say at the end, well done thou good and faithful servant. But whenever we count on God's grace, we know that only one life is sufficient to atone for all of our sins. That thief on the cross lived for only a few more hours after making that request. But let me tell you something. His hope was no less secure than that of one who walked with Jesus for 70 years. That's grace. And grace gives confidence. Without grace, there's always doubt as to whether you've done enough. And there should be. Because we can never earn God's forgiveness don't let anybody tell you that you can another thing we see right here is a better life (laughs) this thief got more than he imagined found out he wasn't going to be the gardener in the kingdom of the messiah he was going to get something more than he asked for He asked for a place in a worldly kingdom. He received an address in paradise. Now, there's some people that they want to tell you that paradise is just some kind of a way station on the way to heaven or it's some kind of a halfway spot or a stopover on the way to heaven. You know what paradise is? Paradise is where the Father is. And therefore, that's where Jesus is because just before Jesus died, what did he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So whenever Jesus told the, para- the, the thief on the cross, he said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Where was that going to be? It was going to be with the Father. So whenever we talk about the promise of paradise, what more can we ask for? I mean, look at what the New Testament has to say about paradise. Really, it just tells us that whenever we die here, what do we do? We depart to be with Christ because that is far better. That's what we look forward to, and so that must be what paradise is. You look in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, we see that paradise is referred to as the third heaven. It's what Paul talks about, that he had this vision... Or he was bodily transported, he said, to the third heaven into paradise. Understand what a Jew would mean by that. What that's just talking about is this. As far as the Jews were concerned, there were like these three levels of heaven. There was the heaven that we see whenever we look up and we see the birds. You know, in other words, we see the fowls of the heavens. That's the air that we breathe. The second level of paradise was the place where we would see the stars and the planets. But the third level of paradise is the dwelling place of God. And then in Revelation chapter 2 verse 7, it refers to paradise as the place where the tree of life is. Indicating that there is a place where the sorrows of sin's curse are no longer a hindrance to our joy. There is a place like the Garden of Eden without snakes though. There is a life of undiluted joy that is better than anything that we can ever find on this earth. And the last thing we see here is the promise of an eternal day. The promise that Jesus made to this dying thief is one of the most memorable statements that he ever made. Truly I tell you today you shall be with me in paradise. But what did Jesus mean by today? Did Jesus say it this way? Did he say, I'm telling you truly I'm telling you truly today that you will be with me in paradise. Or did he say, truly I tell you that you will be with me in paradise today. Do you see the difference there? In other words, saying, I'm telling you today about this. I'm not telling you when it's going to happen. I'm just telling you about it today. No, that's not what Jesus said. I mean, if, what he, if, if Jesus meant that, if he was just saying, I'm going to make you a promise today that... You're going to live with me in paradise sometime. Well, that's dumb. I mean, hello. Everything that Jesus said from the cross that day, he had said it today. Okay? So that was unnecessary. What Jesus is saying is this. He said, I am telling you and I'm making you this promise that today... You are going to be with me in paradise. In other words, when we leave this joint that we call earth, we are going to go into the presence of the Father. You're going to be with me in paradise. In other words, eternal life for that thief began right then. I mean, that's what the scriptures tells us. Jesus gives us a wonderful hope. Jesus gives us an eternal hope. And eternity does not begin when we die Eternity begins as soon as we believe. That's what the scripture tells us. You look in John chapter 5 verse 24. Jesus says truly truly I say to you. Whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me. Who sent me. Has eternal life, not will have eternal life. He has eternal life, and he says he does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death into life. Not that he will pass from death into life; he already has passed from death into life. And in John chapter eleven, verses twenty-five and twenty-six, it was the it was the promise that Jesus made to to Martha at. Close, you know, after her brother Lazarus had died. And when he said, you know, Martha comes up and says to Jesus, If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, Well, your brother will rise again. And she said, Well, I know, at the resurrection, he's going to rise again. And then Jesus said this I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives. And believes in me shall never die. Now let me paraphrase that for you. Where he's saying this. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me. Even if he should die. He's going to keep on living. And the one who is alive right now. Will never die. Ever. Eternal life began for you. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now. Sometimes I kind of wonder if people really take that seriously. And I realize sometimes we say things that we really don't mean. But, you know, sometimes we, we just don't act like we believe that eternal life begins until we kick the bucket down here. We begin our prayer sometimes with, thank you for this day. Well, you know, are we speaking as if God just gives us one day at a time when actually we possess eternity? Or how about this one? And I know I've mentioned this before. The response we hear whenever we ask someone how they're doing. And they say, I'm doing good because I woke up on this side of the ground this morning. I mean, is that the best that life has to offer you? Listen, if a Christian is honest, he should be able to say something like this. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing quite well, but the best is yet to come. And it is. You see... We know that the promise that Jesus made to a condemned criminal can apply to us as well. And because of that, we don't fear tomorrow because we possess an eternal day. Don't forget about that. Years ago, there was an old spiritual written. It was recorded by the Statler brothers and the the Statlers, and also by the Blackwood Brothers and several others. And I'm not going to sing it to you because I can't sing in front of people. I sing a pretty good tune in the truck, but not in front of people. But it goes like this. I love this. By and by, by and by, when I reach that home beyond the sky where the wicked will cease from troubling and the weary will be at rest, every day will be Sunday. By and by. Don't you like that? What does the future hold for you? Let's pray together. Now, our Lord, we thank you for the promise of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that he gives that nobody else can give us. We're thankful that all of our sins and transgressions were placed upon him at the cross. And we know that we can look not just at tomorrow, but forever with hope. Now, Lord, I pray that we will not, that no one will leave this pl- place without possessing this promise of eternity. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.